0: When I think about the things that have most profoundly defined and shaped women's lives throughout history, one of the first things that comes to mind is motherhood. Motherhood is that event that, whether they like it or not, girls are put in training for from the time they're toddlers. And whether a woman is a mother is one of the biggest determinants of the amount of energy and time she has to dedicate to her own creative, professional, and self-development. So, a while back, I came across an Instagram account called Millennial Emma. In her account, Emma chronicles child-free women in history with the purpose of connecting the dots between their incredible achievements and their lack of parental responsibilities. Logically, women of the past who didn't have children were more likely to have the time and the money and more autonomy to accomplish things outside the norm than their counterparts who did have children. The more that I thought about child-free women in history, the more I saw it as a crucial piece of a larger conversation. And that's a conversation about the untapped potential of women and how we define women and their value in society, and also how assumed future motherhood affects us all. Now while things today are much more open and equal for women in many parts of the world, there are still interesting and strong connections to be made between what being child-free meant for women in history and can still mean for women today. And so I wanted to speak to Emma to understand more about these child-free women in history and what their experiences mean for all of us. Now I want to clarify from the start that I don't advocate for having kids or not having kids. Both options have overwhelming benefits if they're the right fit for the individual. But what I do advocate for is the recognition that both lifestyles, having children or not, are valuable and complete ways to live. And that understanding each perspective contributes to a world where women can more easily thrive, whether they're mothers or not. As a heads up, in this conversation, you will probably hear a bit of clicking in the background for a short while in the first portion. Emma has a dog who was also excited about our conversation. So let's jump in. I'm Kristen, and this is Broadly Underestimated, the podcast dedicated to understanding the underestimated aspects of our lives. Every object, institution, historical event, even the most mundane, has its own revolutionary story. And it's often the underestimated women behind those stories that have shaped life as we know it today.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm so excited.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. Since the moment I saw your Instagram account, I knew I wanted to talk to you at some point. It was really the first time I realized that there was a child-free movement out there. I had no idea. And I was so excited, you know, going through your incredible account and starting to see for the first time this kind of breadth of history of women all in one place that was focused on this idea of women who didn't have children for various reasons, but what that meant for their lives historically. Um, So let's just take a second. And if you could just talk about your account a little bit and describe it and, and uh, let us know exactly what it is.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, It's something that I feel very passionate about because I'm child-free by choice. So I've never wanted children. And that's been since childhood. But I grew up in a conservative religious environment. So I was always told, everybody gets married, everybody has children. And I really didn't know many women um, who did not do that. And and not in my family, like, everybody got married and had multiple kids. Um, and so it was a bit of a struggle growing up. And I, you know, I I loved books like Little Women, and I identified with Jo, and well, yes, she marries, and I think in the second book she has kids, but she's so independent, and so I really uh, gravitated towards these kind of, these female heroines that expressed feelings that they might not want to go the traditional route, or at least not Uh, not before experiencing the world. Um, And then when you start, I started looking into the writers themselves, I was like, oh, Jane Austen, you know, never married and had kids. Louisa May Alcott never married or had kids. And and I started feeling very connected to these women and wondering how many more were out there uh, because of how I grew up. And it was never presented as an option outside of uh, becoming a nun which, you know, I thought about because it was the only thing I could think of that would be the alternative that I would be allowed to not get, not have children, which would mean not getting married and becoming a nun. Uh, So I did kind of consider that in high school until I uh, discovered the child-free community through internet. I think I was in in college and it is still a little bit of a, a bubble. I think it's a very involved community, but it's not always known outside of this specific community because, whether you're childless or child-free, you might not. People who aren't might not be looking for that specific content. So, um, in the childless community, which is people who want kids but don't have them yet or can't have them, those women will usually end up finding the childless hashtag because they're struggling, uh, because they're not being understood um, in their families, or they feel pressured, their struggles with infertility. So it's, it's, it's kind of always this, um, usually it's, it's having, it's struggling with societal expectations. I feel that that brings people to trying to find these community, uh, but they're not always very well known, uh, let's say in, in the mainstream. <laughs> so I think that connects a lot of us women is that we've all faced, whether you're uh, child free childless, uh, regretting motherhood to some point or struggling with motherhood. It's, it's always this idea of, struggling with with a lot of things that expectations and pressures and uh how you should live your life that that bring us all together and and I feel like that connects us all even though um there's a very wide spectrum you know from and and the child list includes people who haven't made their mind up yet they are not child free because they might change their mind but It doesn't mean that, you know, they are appreciating being pressured at 20 years old uh, to get married and and have kids. Uh, And then they might get married later, but still respect, you know, the the fact that they didn't want to be pressured into it before they were able to make
0: their own decision. So with that amazing intro to this concept, the way that you just described that, I feel like you just dropped a grenade of ideas to kind of pick it apart first defining these ideas of childless and childfree and accepting the fact that there is a spectrum is so important. I think that uh, so many people have experienced this idea of, as you said, expectation. There's an expectation for many people from the moment they're born of kind of a path that their life is going to follow, a basic path, right? And for many people, that expectation includes eventually growing up, finding a partner, um, making a commitment to that partner, and then having children. And that's Kind of the default expectation. And having
1: having more than one, because there's a whole community about one and done that I've discovered of women who don't want more than one, but feel that you know everybody's pressuring them to have more, which I find fascinating that like it never stops. (laughs) It's just, yeah.
0: Yeah. There's, I mean, this thing is a web, right? It's an interconnected web. And there's so many directions um, that this thing expands out in, right? That's such a big life concept. So understanding that there is this spectrum of people who, based on that expectation, either it's something that their their desires align with that expectation very naturally. I think we all know people who, they always knew they wanted to have kids. It was never a question for them. It was a very natural transition. And then I think we all know people who are very, kind of toil with the idea. They are very undecided and it can be a very painful process to go through to figure out what they want because there's so, it's such a heavy thing. It's, there's so much baggage surrounding it about how to make this decision. I think it's often a very uh, fear-based decision as well, because you're hearing from all sides that regret is going to be a thing, whether you do it or you don't. (laughs) I think for some people, I think regret after having kids is not spoken about as uh, widely. And I think that's, understandable to a certain extent, because I think a lot of people don't want to speak openly about regret after having a child. They don't want to put that on their child. And um, they also fear about how that reflects on them if they were to speak about it that way. But I think mostly the, the Talking about regret is like, oh, if you don't, if you don't have a child and then it becomes too late, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life and there's nothing you can do about it. And I don't think that's healthy, right? Like it's something that I think people understand that there is some kind of a timeline for this, but I don't think it's healthy to present it from that light. It's not, it's not helpful either when people are trying to make a decision. So there's kind of our our center of the spectrum, and it's big. And then the other end of the spectrum is this child-free end, right? And plenty of people know, just like you, from very early on, like, this is not for me. And that's a really hard place to be because I think that it can be a very isolated place to be because people aren't really talking about that. Um, And then of course, there's people who come to that decision later on in life as well, but they become very decided about it. Um, So you said that from very early on, you just knew that this was not for you. Can you kind of talk about your background a bit in that?
1: Yeah, I think it's, you know, for me, it's really related to my personality. Uh, Even as a child, I was overwhelmed by other children. They're too noisy, too energetic. I'm very introverted, shy. I have sensory overload issues. And so it was like, I don't even, you know, necessarily like hanging out with a ton of kids. And my family is, there's hundreds of um, uncles and aunts. So that's a lot of children because it's a big extended family. And then uh, we, I never had sex ed, so I've never seen those childbirth videos that I've heard some people talk about. (laughs) Um, But it was more the fact to me, which was so helpful is that honestly, most of my friends, all my close friends through middle school and high school kind of felt the same um we were not you know not necessarily super popular we were kind of like our little group and we loved reading and we loved playing soccer and you know we wanted to be kind of like we wanted to be seen as equals as the boys which we weren't when we were playing soccer and but we also didn't want necessarily to feel pressured by the more popular girls because we didn't follow the fashion and so we were kind of already, I guess, used to this, (laughs) not necessarily feeling like we're, we have our own spot. So we created it, you know, with our friendship and uh, reading all these books from my teenage years. Uh, So Little Women, of course, classic, but um, it was also the time of uh, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. There's also, I mean, Narnia, like there's, I just found that there were a lot of books that had kind of strong, Female characters that we could identify with, and um, as of today, when we're closing on, we're getting to our thirties. Um, none of us have kids. Um, some of us child-free by choice. Others, you know, more undecided. But none, none of my five or six closest friends have kids, and um, I only two of us, I think, are, are married. And it's just, uh, it's just been interesting because it's so different from the rest of my life. It's so different from all my family. Um, and these five or six friends that are so close to my heart uh, from my childhood and early teenage years, they're, they're still, and, and in terms of numbers, they're so small compared to the number of people that I've met who have told me that I'll change my mind, I'll regret it. Uh, once you meet the right person, <laughs> um, which, you know, I did read, meet the right person and you know he's child free too <laughs> or at least he, he was he could have gone either way but I think he realizes um how our life and our personalities just fit the child free life better um so it's 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 interesting because I think the people I care about the most probably I would say respect my choice my you know my close friends and, and my husband um and my brother and my dad but not my mom uh but but this pressure I feel from my religious family is still so overwhelming and I still feel all the time so much shame and I you know I think about regularly like okay like am i making the right decision and like it's just to me I it's just so strong it's inside me it's like in my gut like you know how some people some women will be like oh I've always wanted to be a mother I feel it in my gut well I feel it in my gut that I can't. And, and honestly, I think that if it wasn't that strong of a conviction, I might have been persuaded probably to, you know, get married and have children maybe with somebody. Um, And I, (laughs) it's a little bit scary to think about where my life would be. And um, so I'm very happy that it's been such an easy choice for me, not even a choice. It's just been, it's just been how it is (laughs) because I think when you don't know, it's a lot harder to decide if it's for you or not. Like it's so much easier to be at the end of the spectrum. (laughs) But it's it's to me, this the relying and finding these women through history has been important to make me feel like my choice is valid and to try and give me strength to answer people who are like, well, you know, why aren't you having kids? Women are supposed to have kids uh you'll be unhappy without kids and it's just um yeah it's 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 really been from something that i've done for myself and then i realized that you know i should put it out there <laughs> um because there is so much there's been so much growth around women's history on social media um and there's been so much about child free and childless communities and personal testimonies but i i wanted to um to help people find me combine both interests because when I Googled at first, you know, child-free women through history, like it was aside from, I think Jane Austen and Louisa May Alcott and Susan B. Anthony, it was all contemporary women like Dolly Parton, which, which are great and Gloria Steinem. Fantastic. And I absolutely love them, but I was like, well, there has to be more. (laughs) There has to be more women that never had children. (laughs) So I decided to kind of, start putting names in an Excel spreadsheet and it grew and grew and grew and I have I think I'm getting close to a thousand. <laughs> by now. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and it's it's all women that have a Wikipedia page. That's like that's kind of like my standard for like, are <laughs> they you know of historical importance? And like I think they all have a Wikipedia page which makes it easier uh, to keep track of and it's just been, so it's, it's not even, you know, going through records and just names of women that I can only find that they died childless. It's, it's, it's women who made enough of an impact on history. (laughs) So I found, yeah, it's very comforting to me to know that, you know, I can have this list and um, try and, and build something out of it to, to make other people feel less, less isolated, as you say. I think that's, The big
0: thing. That's incredibly interesting. This connection between you finding this information, finding that it helps you so much, and then sharing it, right? And it creates this really interesting and also entertaining sort of profile that you have just to go through and see how many women there were who were child free, what they've done. And of course, you know, I would never say that having, you know, children is a horrible thing, is a bad thing, nothing like that. But I think logistically in your life, women who don't have children just from a practical sense, have more time. They have more time to work on projects, education, or work. Um, And so I can see how there is this trend for women who make kind of that threshold of having a Wikipedia page because they made some kind of a public impact because they had time to. They had the energy to do so. Um, But there's also that piece of me that's very interested in the fact that you have kind of your the the standard the threshold that you have right now is for women uh, who have a Wikipedia page, but how many women don't, right? And also women who did amazing things, but there's just gaps in the records, right? Which is something I'm passionate about and fascinated by, and I think that over time we can we can fill in those gaps and find out more and and find more creative ways to fill those gaps. But um, what an interesting thing to observe, I guess, with. Uh, what that threshold means. Uh, But there's still so many, there's so many women uh, that you have to talk about. So actually let's jump into a couple of them because as I have scrolled through your account over time, there are so many. And obviously I sent you a big list. I'm like, this one's so interesting and this one and this one. So we'll, we'll keep it together. We'll keep it (laughs) kind of concise, but one woman is Nancy Wake. Uh, So she was a world war II spy. I mean, her life plays out like a, like a movie, like a thriller. Uh, so talk to me about her a little bit and why you chose to highlight her and, and just how awesome she was. Yes, absolutely.
1: Um, so, I mean, she was born in New Zealand, so I think she's, you know, claimed by New Zealand and Australia, but she came to prominence in France, uh, where she lived as a journalist and and got married to this millionaire French man called Henri Fiocca, and they were socialites. Um, and then that's when World War II started. Um, and she was she started driving ambulances, and she wanted to do more, so she got involved in um, escape networks to help Allied men get out of occupied France. Because it, um, if if you remember, um, uh, Vichy, the Vichy government, basically. Collaborated with Nazi Germany, so they had to try and get people out uh, through Spain, so they can go back to the UK or you know in another safe country, and and that kind of uh, work. I mean, it was dangerous, and and she was fearless. Um, it's it's kind of impressive, really, everything she did. She was so good at escaping that I love that the Gestapo called her the white mouse. Um, I'm pretty sure until late in the war, they didn't even know her name. Like they they knew she existed, but they didn't know her name. So they didn't at some point she was arrested um, because they were going through a train and they arrested a bunch of people. And she, she was arrested, but they didn't realize who she was. They thought she was somebody else <laughs> um, who was working against them, but they didn't realize how important uh, she had been to the uh, resistance Um, and she was able to be uh, released because the an important resistance member was able to say oh she's my mistress and (laughs) I like how um some of her biographers say like, oh, yeah, so French people, even though they were collaborating, you know, with the with the Germans are like, oh, it's your mistress. OK, we, we can let her go. That's yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I find it kind of interesting that the fact that she was a mistress and we needed to keep
0: the relationship secret was good enough for her to be let go. Um, I think you know, that's the key times. with like female spies, though. Right. I mean, yeah. historically, right. That's yeah. that's really the key point is that you were kind of uh, below suspicion. Uh, no one was expecting for uh, for women to be performing these activities, but right. she like at first, right, helping with the resistance and getting, for example, British pilots who their planes were down, you know, behind enemy lines and kind of helping getting them back to Britain. That was a small piece of, of this sort of network that she was working with, right? Just sort of trying to smuggle people out. But then also she eventually finds herself in England and she's doing like 007 training,
1: she was she, like she couldn't stand still and it was never enough for her. So as you said, like, um, you know, smuggling people out of occupied France was already dangerous enough because she, um, you know, you had to trust that the person you were being put in contact wasn't a spy. And, and there were people that betrayed the people she knew and and she... Uh, I think a couple of times she was at risk of, you know, herself being being arrested because people close to her had been betrayed. Um, and so that's why she left to England, because I believe they were kind of closing in on her. Um, and she joined the um, special executives, uh, the special operations executive. And as I said, she trained, I mean, really yes it's almost a precursor right of MI6 and (laughs) James Bond it's and her her life is is really like a movie which is fascinating and eventually um, she parachuted into France and she was um, basically joining forces with the the Maquis the French was there um and they needed a radio to communicate with london and her operator i think had forgotten it or there were parts missing and the closest was about like 500 kilometers and she decided to go and there were checkpoints and she had to bicycle in just like a couple days back and forth uh i think it's over 300 miles um and i mean and and go through these checkpoints and flirt <laughs> you know with the guards to be To be, as I said, like, I think one of the ways she tried to avoid suspicion was by being so flirtatious and like, well, are you going to search me? And, you know, then they were like, oh, she's not a, (laughs) she's clearly
0: not trouble if she's, you know, not afraid of being searched. Um, Right. And and she was also sort of like notoriously beautiful too, right? So she definitely played that to her advantage as well. Yes.
1: Completely. And, um, and so she she did that. And be, thanks to that radio, they were able to be really active. Uh, I, I I just don't know what would have happened if she hadn't decided, you know, to do that very long, uh, very arduous bicycle ride. And it's just, as I said, she, she just, I think she was one of those personalities that she felt so strongly about everything that was going on that she never stopped to think necessarily about her own safety. She just did what needed to be done. And to the point where when she went to England, she left her husband behind. Uh, And and that's a tragic part of her story is that eventually he was arrested and um, questioned and tortured and he wouldn't tell them anything uh, about her and, and he died and um, he was the love of her life. And so basically, you know, she, in a way she lost her husband by choosing to be such an important piece of um, the, the resistance network and putting her, what she felt was her duty, her, what needed to be done above her own personal life, which is a sacrifice that um, is very difficult to, to, to make. And I think, yeah, I think, you know, you think about it, she was married to a wealthy man in France, an occupied France. Uh, She could have, well, she, she probably would have always been involved, right, in networks, but she could have done work that was more subtle, like she could have kept a lower profile or not be involved at all. There's, you know, a lot of French people (laughs) collaborated at that time. She, she didn't have to do everything she did and lose her husband and the love of her life. And, and it's, it's, it's incredible what she did. And I think, you know, part of the reason why she was able to do what she did is, is in a way that she didn't have children, because I think it would have been as, as hard as it was for her to lose her husband. I just don't know how you would deal with the guilt of endangering uh, children and, and that's not to mean that people who have children didn't get involved in, in the network it just means that she was on the front so much and active in in places that put her in physical danger that would probably it would probably be very a very difficult choice to make if she had had children to take care of and and i think about those episodes that you did about you know elizabeth friedman um and she did, such tremendous work and but it was more like behind the scenes right um whereas Nancy Wake was uh, bicycling being uh, going through checkpoints being parachuted smuggling people and having to um make contacts with different sources that you have to trust and she was I'm pretty sure she was beaten the time she was arrested uh because they thought she you know she was somebody that she was not uh it's it's just it's it was very physical uh, very un, in the front uh, of the of the action and I think you know um, there's a reason why a lot of the people that are brave enough to be usually in those positions tend to be encouraged to have limited personal connections, families, spouses, children because, That's the thing when you, if you arrest them or if you arrest their family, you can torture them to find information. So I think there's a big connection sometimes in between people who have been so at the forefront of the action and having less, you know, ties that could be used uh, to gather information. And in a biography that was written, there's a quote about the fact that she didn't have children. And I don't think she's necessarily child-free because it's it's more of an ambivalence. But, you know, she says about her first husband, Henri Fioca, we loved each other. We had a fabulous time together. We were soulmates. As to the possibility of children, we didn't plan to have them, but we didn't try not to have them. They just didn't come. So, you know, maybe she would have gotten pregnant and had children, but that could have Changed her life. Um, it's still the fact that her
0: lifestyle was not compatible. I think um, with with having children, um, <laughs> definitely not. You know, it's so interesting because a really important uh, like point here is this idea that if you have you know children, obviously your perspective, your priorities shift as they should, and that means necessarily that your threshold for risk is lower, typically, right, and so. In this case, just as you kind of uh, projected, that if Nancy Wake had had children, her threshold for risk would have been lower. I think the highest likelihood is that she wouldn't have participated in the war in the same way and wouldn't have been able to make the same impact. And I think a key, another key point here with this conversation about child-free women is that just to kind of clarify you know there is no bad decision right like having a child not having a child this is about options it's not about which decision is right or wrong right it's about what decision is the best fit for you and having the freedom and clarity and choice to make the best decision for you and so for example in nancy wake's situation she wasn't exactly child free she wasn't looking specifically not to have kids but it did Uh, the fact that she didn't have children definitely was kind of the foundation of her being able to achieve some really important things. Now, for other people, they may feel that having kids actually motivates them to do other things. So again, I'm just highlighting this fact that there is no right or wrong decision. But we need to recognize the nuance in all this and understand that whether you have kids or not impacts your life in such a profound way and impacts the way you're able to participate in certain things in the world.
1: Yes. I think you phrased it so well and so concisely. That's, that's exactly it. Um, Options are important, knowing your personality and, and that, you know, it, it, you, your risk uh, threshold should be lower if you have kids. I mean, they're they're your priority
0: um and as you said she would have not she should have not done what she did. right <laughs> the more i learned about her the more i was like i love her i love her so much i mean just someone who seemed fearless and that term is really tricky right it doesn't mean you don't ever feel fear but you just push through it <laughs> um so uh she is a fascinating example of a very a fiercely independent woman who was on her own at the age of 16 kind of as far as i understand it sort of Faked her way into journalism, but then ended up being very good at it and really made a career for herself, very independent. So she's a a fascinating example all around of a woman who accomplished great things, pushed through really amazing barriers, and was just very strong and intelligent. So another person that I really love that you've talked about um, is Marie Marvingt. I probably am mispronouncing her name because she's French. Um, But she is a fascinating person as well. And she definitely ties into one of my personal interests, which I'm sure anyone who has <laughs> listened to the podcast knows I love bicycles. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about her. I had never heard of her um, before I saw her on your Instagram account. Yes, she
1: is probably one of my favorite. And it's not just because we're both French. <laughs> uh, it's just because kind of similarly to Nancy Wake, like, you read her story and it's like, wow, this kid could- this should be a movie. Well, actually, in a way, it did become a movie because she inspired a serial called The Perils of Pauline uh, in around 1914. So in a way, maybe she did. (laughs) But they should redo something. They should do a biopic. Um, And she is just, uh, she is like multi-talented, record-breaking athletes. And when I say athlete, I mean in so many different sports (laughs) um she did i think swimming and and bicycling were her two first loves um and she was still bicycling at like 80 years old and it really was one of her biggest loves um which as you as you've discussed um it's kind of interesting how that symbol was for women of that time um, of independence and almost rebellion in a way <laughs> you don't think about that today. It's like, it's a bike. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but at the time, um, you probably needed some courage to, to, to ride on a bicycle in front of people because there was um, not necessarily a stigma attached to it, but you know, there was a certain type of women who rode bicycles. Mm-hmm. Um, so she never, she um she had a, a brother um i believe he was a little bit sickly so her father basically treated her almost like a boy and taught her all of these sports you think and, and it was her personality too so she took to it uh but she did um so swimming fencing riflery shooting skiing wow. speed skating luge bobsledding like a lot of winter sports Um, swimming of course as I said and she swam uh, through the the, the Seine through Paris Uh, she also did a lot of things related to aviation so not just airplanes which at the time were absolutely deadly (laughs) Uh, but she also did ballooning before airplanes. Of
0: course she did. Yeah
1: (laughs) and and, uh, it's kind of interesting in her biography that was written only recently uh, by Rosalie Maggio she did, She describes that in nineteen oh nine she became the first woman to pilot a balloon from Europe to England and, and there was a man with her and I'm pretty sure he was terrified and, and she was fearless and there was like <laughs> storms and stuff. And, and then, you know, landing wasn't necessarily <laughs> the easiest thing to do. So I think they just, you know, would crash into a tree and hope that it was, it hope was for the best. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of wild to think about because we have so many safety regulations today and it's just <laughs> at the time she's like, let's do this. Let's just try it <laughs> and see, see how it works. Um, And I think she also did probably helicopter, like she, she did multiple forms of aviation. It was just anything, basically anything that she could find, she would do. Um, And she was also, she also started as a journalist, kind of like Nancy, although, you know, earlier, um, but it's, that's how she got involved into the aviation world by reporting on it. I think she was as a journalist, she was invited on a balloon and then she was like, I love this. <laughs> and she was she was also active during both uh, world wars um, as a nurse. She was she was influenced by Florence Nightingale's work. Um, Florence Nightingale, who also never married or had kids and was completely devoted to nursing. And that was one of her inspirations to follow nursing. And so she did that during the wars in the first world war she disguised herself as a man to be able to go to the front to fight for a little bit um which again there are there's a couple women through history that have disguised themselves as men to to be able to participate actively and it's always fascinated to me because it's wow it's like multiple dangers you know but it's she's a little bit like like Nancy Wake, it's like whatever she could do, she would do. And and if they didn't let her do it because of, you know, she was a woman, she would disguise herself as a man. Or later on, she uh, also was a combat pilot because they were lacking male pilots. So they let her <laughs> be one. One of the things I love about her is that she invented a version of the air ambulance. Um, so obviously, she was not necessarily the first one or only person to think about combining you know, um, airplanes and ambulances to be able to lift people off of war zones, but she patented a version and she tried to make it happen. And she became very involved as a public speaker uh, about the benefits of, of that kind of modern technology and life-saving. Um, and she went around the world to talk about it and that enabled her during World War II um, to use this public speaking as a cover for uh, resistance work uh, because she had an excuse to travel, um, papers to travel, and she was able to to be involved in that network, which I believe was only confirmed uh, recently. It was speculated that she had been involved, but it's only in the more recent years that they actually found a medal um, that- Oh, interesting. For, yes. The, the humility is also kind of impressive of these women, like they didn't go around saying, look at what all I did, <laughs> give me money, give me honors, they were, they seem to have been, you know, just living their lives and, and not worrying too much about,
0: um, yeah, about. I women. feel like I would just be dropping that in conversation. You're like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, you know, when I like did that one mission that one time or, you know, yeah. when I broke that record that one time." And you know, meanwhile, we're talking about socks and I'm just throwing in this conversation about <laughs> right. my my war work anyway. And
1: she <laughs> broke like she had like, over 30 medals in sports and wow. like she was highly recognized uh, in France, uh, although she was mostly forgotten by the time of of her death. Um, and and about bad. the bicycle thing, I think uh, one of the things that's interesting is her participation, quote unquote, uh, in the Tour de France um, in 1908. So she wasn't allowed to participate because she was a woman, but she decided that it was she was not going to let it slow her down. And she rode her bike behind the man um, for the whole tour and she completed it. And it's especially impressive because most of the men did not complete it only Mm -hmm. 36 out of over 100 did so officially she didn't she wasn't part of it but she actually did better than many of the male writers even though she was supposed to be a woman and therefore weak and (laughs) not capable of such (laughs) physical yeah i mean
0: not not participating in the official race, but still completing the thing. That's the sort of the precedent for things that happen now. Mm-hmm. The fact that women haven't been able to participate in the Tour de France has been a very contentious thing for a very long time. Um, and kind of in the same vein, there's you know a cycling team or group that called the Internationales that do a similar thing. They ride the Tour de France a day ahead of uh, the men and they just show that they can do it, kind of trying to push for this idea that we should be included. So the idea of completing it when you can to say it can be done is important and still happens. She was not shy about uh, sharing her thoughts (laughs) on on marriage and the
1: pressures. And (laughs) like, there's this great quote that I love. um, I will never marry. I couldn't bear the ties of marriage and I can't imagine any man putting up with me for long. (laughs) Climbing mountains is a lot more interesting to me than washing dishes. Um, And you have to remember that, again, I feel like today we think of marriage as an equal partnership, at least it should be. But at the time when you married, your husband was the priority. So anything that you wanted to do had to come second. So I think it makes a lot of sense for these women to say like, I want to be able two things that I care about. And I won't be able to do that if I get married. Uh, so I'm not going to get married. It's a way that's like a trick. Ah, I'm not
0: going to get married. You won't be able to, to tame me. You know, what's so interesting, I think about that is so this idea of, uh, kind of marriage and what that means uh, for women, especially historically, as you said, often, um, you know, marriage means something very different for women now than it did then if they have an equal partnership. But of course, then that was just not the case. And even of course, many women did have husbands who were wonderful and and great, and they had at least approaching equal partnerships. But even then, even then legally, you weren't equal and you needed your husband's permission and things to do a lot of things. I mean, Even until really shockingly recently, women needed, you know, their husband's signature to get their own, you know, bank accounts or credit cards, right? So it really, it's not that far back in history. And so I can understand a lot of women not wanting to feel subject to those kinds of both legal and social ties and like restrictions, But this also bleeds into another concept that actually illustrates so many of the other concepts that I think are important to talk about uh, when you're filling out this child-free concept, which is, again, in your Instagram account, you've talked about how child-free women are portrayed in historical fiction or period dramas, right? So whether that's books or TV series or movies, and I found this so important um, because in my experience, in a lot of historical fiction, whether that be books or you know visual media, childless or child-free women are objects to be pitied. And that is, I think, probably the most common way that women in that position are, are seen. It's that, oh, it's just too bad. It just didn't happen for them. Um, and there are a million other ways to kind of go about viewing that. And you've talked about that in your Instagram account. So I'd love to hear more about what you think about this.
1: Yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting subject. I think, unfortunately, it's because uh, pregnancy, kids, or infertility bring a lot of drama that can be storylines. So I I, I do get that in a way that there's this focus sometimes on, on marriage and having babies because <laughs> it moves the storyline along. Uh, but there's still so many stereotypes. Um, it's so, as you said, it's the, the pity for the infertile woman uh, who usually is shown as completely desperate. Um, whereas um, if, if you're involved in the childless community, there is a lot of women who are kind of talking about moving past Uh, the childlessness embracing childlessness it's difficult but like if it's not happening you need to you know they try and live with it instead of staying in this state where it's it's too hard to think about anything else which something I admire a lot but as you say you only see the desperate (laughs) sad pitiful um woman who can't have children uh you also have the crazy cat lady uh while i i don't (laughs) mind being called a crazy cat lady um you know it's usually not a good thing or the bitter old maid uh who never married and she hates men (laughs) um those are usually kind of the stereotypes and then a common trope is is the rebellious young woman who will change her mind so I think the best example would be, you know, Joe March and Little Women. And those who know a little bit about Louisa May Alcott's life know that she was pressured by the publisher to have Joe married. She didn't want it to. But the result is the same. She ends up marrying, even though, you know, she's very independent. Um, and, And there's a lot of younger women like that who expressed this, like, I don't want to get married because I want to be independent. And by the end, they they get married which which sometimes can 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 kind of add to this pressure of like oh you'll change your mind like you're young once you're you know it's like okay but at what age is are you not too young anymore because usually these uh, characters are you know 14 to 18 but even today like even at 22 23 people are still telling you you're too young well okay
0: but when does that <laughs> <People stop? laughs> in their people's late 20s and 30s they're saying they're not like you're, you'll figure it out
1: I, there's been more child-free or childless representation in the media uh, recently, but it still lacks in, in period dramas, uh, as you said. Like the ones that I could think of, Christina of Sweden had a biopic too. Uh, Mary Anning, who was a paleontologist, had a not exactly a biopic, but there was a movie that included her. Emily Dickinson and Lister. Uh, and Beatrix Potter and the reason I'm mentioning is this is because all of them except Beatrix Potter have undercurrent of lesbian relationships um which which are like at least for Christina of Sweden and Emily Dickinson and Ann Lister definitely true but what I mean is like it's like the only care the only women who are allowed to not want to marry and have children are lesbians but because but you don't have heterosexual child-free women who express that and I feel like that's a little bit lacking, uh, and and you know, I, I, I'll take any child free or childless woman that I can. And, um, in the movie Ammonite, about Mary Anning and mm-hmm. Kate Winslet, there is a scene in which, uh, the other character, uh, played by Sorcerer Ronan, asks her uh, if she has children because her character is desperately childless, as we've discussed. Uh, and so she, and Mary Anning is like, no, no children, and then goes on to explain that her mother had 10 children and eight of them died. <laughs> uh, and that, you know, it, I mean, it was a reality at the time. And Mary Anning basically is happy to do her work. And, you know, it's so I was happy to see that mentioned in the movie. And it's always great when characters can actually be allowed to express because... There are movies about people who didn't have children, but it's not always addressed in the movie. So when it's addressed, it's great. I would love to see maybe, you know, again, a Marie Marvin (laughs) biopic or any woman who who was openly child free um, and happily child free, too, because Mary Anning, the movie Ammonite is a little bit. has a bit of a depressing vibe <laughs> to yes. it it's um, so good but yes <laughs> but for example one of one of my favorite and it's it's a fictional character but frightney fisher uh from miss fisher murders mystery and she's like i love her it's like in the 1920s she's australian she's like sexually liberated vibrant rule-breaking she's a detective it's like a modern miss marple who's also doesn't have kids, uh, but she's older. So it's more acceptable. Uh, But, you know, Franny Fisher, she, in one of the first episodes, she's actually taking birth control pills. Um, And that's, I mean, I love that. And again, it's more recent.
0: So it's more understandable that it would be depicted that way. This uh, whole thing speaks to the fact that the more that we show this, and the, the more that we are sensitive to this topic, meaning that, being child-free can be an asset and we should show it that way, right? If you're, if you are actually child-free, right? Women who are childless and that's something that's very painful for them, that is something that we should be very sensitive to. But for women who have made this decision and they are child-free, for them, this is an asset. So why don't we accurately portray it as that? Because I'm just so passionate about this idea that when you see something like that, it helps you understand that these are possibilities for you. And that's why I think there's so much value in this child-free movement for everyone, whatever your decision is, right? Because if you think that you might want to be child-free or you're just getting this inkling like that, you know, wow, that could be a thing, you have a community to look to, to see what, what that option looks like and to understand it and try to understand yourself better. If that's not something you want, if you want children, that's also fine, but then it helps you understand, you know, a different... Segment of the population who's making different decisions, but all of it makes everyone more sensitive to different choices. And so I think that's always a good thing.
1: Yes, that's that's also what I think is most important is the showing the nuance of life. Because I grew up in a very black and white world. And now I always say the world is just different shades of gray, Um, not because it's depressing, but just because everything is actually so nuanced and you know there's a child freedom childless spectrum but like everything in life even you know sexual orientation can be a spectrum and and it's just everything political opinions um it's just
0: and it's much more helpful as you say to show a wide range recently there was this really incredible article in the atlantic that i read and it goes along completely with what we're talking about with uh, Child free women um, or childless, uh, but seen in films and in, mm-hmm. and in just in fiction in general. Um, but this article was both reviewing. Uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, the film, Uh, and also talking about this concept of not having children, right? Because Elizabeth I famously did not have children. And there is so much that can be said about that and what that meant for her life in terms of she was able to dedicate herself completely to her job, you know, of, of being a ruler. But the film itself compares these two women. Mary, Queen of Scots, did have a child. Elizabeth I didn't. And... Her opinion was that in the film, there was a very, very clear comparison, a very clear message about value, right? The value of a person, this is the core issue, right? Of what is a woman's value if she doesn't have children? What is a woman's value if she doesn't put her womb to work?
1: I think it's especially important with this movie because it's about Elizabeth I, who's usually associated as the example of the single woman who had no children. It's like one of the few examples people can usually think about. And and as you said, the movie um, there's this meeting between the two that I believe never happened, and they ascribe to Elizabeth I strong feelings about not being able to have children. And I think there's a quote that says, "I was jealous your beauty." Your bravery, your motherhood—you seem to surpass me in every way, and that is—that <laughs> is a lot to, of words to put into her mouth. It's been a while since I've seen the movie, but I think she even gets pregnant and loses the baby in the movie and is is distraught over it. Uh, the, she the baby with a one of her lovers. I know what article you're talking about, and it's definitely important because it, it talks about this kind of the pitiful childless woman that even elizabeth first even though she was a queen even though she seems to have expressed a desire not to marry uh she actually regretted it and she would have given everything to be more like mary and have a child and uh yeah that uh that first of all for modern women that's not going to make women who can't have children feel better it's not going to make <laughs> uh women who don't want children feel better like it's just it's not gonna make anybody feel good and it's a bit frustrating in the sense of like it's one thing to to take a story of somebody who does regret not having children like virginia wolf who has expressed wanting children and and delve into that but like elizabeth the is i feel like such a great example of just standing your ground at a time where there was probably an incredible amount of pressure on her uh and uh yeah just to uh, reduce her to not using her reproductive
0: organs is um it's a, it's a little bit frustrating <laughs> yeah just, i mean i am yeah, more than a little yeah this has become a more central conversation since you know women have had more control over their reproduction right so relatively recent in history Um, And so the conversation is different. And I know you've touched on this in your account as well, women who as a mechanism to make sure they didn't have kids because, you know, they didn't want to feel kind of the burden of domestic life uh, or motherhood, um, just deciding not to get married, right? because once you're married, you know, just given the fact that you don't have reliable contraception, then pregnancy is a Pretty expected aftermath. Um, And now the conversation looks a lot different. So I think that the important question to ask ourselves is how much value are we ascribing to women based on whether they're parents or not? Uh, And because now there are choices that are fairly controlled.
1: Absolutely. And but I think it's as you touch upon the historical impact of marriage and subsequent motherhood on women. The high mortality rate is also important. Like it was, you know, you were at risk of dying. Uh, I mean, one of the Bronte sisters died, right, from uh, either pregnancy or childbirth complication. Jane Austen saw sisters in law die from childbirth complication. Louisa Alcott's sister died. Uh, Elizabeth I saw her. What was it her mother-in-law get beheaded well like you know it's just like there's a lot of death uh either because of marriage or because of pregnancy and motherhood um i mean mary i believe mary queen of scots was you know was she like raped and forced into marriage uh and then eventually she lost her throne like it just it wasn't you know it's not an easy and simple decision and uh you could you could die, uh, or. Or almost sometimes worse, you could not have children. And for Elizabeth I or queens sometimes who could not have children, it was almost worse than not being married because it was like, well, you're failing now. Like, it's right. not just we don't know. It's like, we know you can't have children. Yeah. So what are you like? Uh, and there was, there's a whole lot about like women who are trying and, and can't have and, and the consequences that it's had for them <laughs> through life. Uh, But Queens, I mean, that's, that's, that's what happened to some of uh, Henry VIII's wife. Mm -hmm. Um, No kids, uh, you die. Bye. Kid, you Mm -hmm. die. It's like, (laughs) it's, uh, yeah, it's, it was, I think sometimes we can forget today how, how risky all of it Mm -hmm. was, uh, both marriage and motherhood. And even though it's, there's still high mortality rates today uh, in some countries um, or some states, uh, it's, as you said, it's a lot more
0: controlled. I read something recently that there are the term childless woman is rampant and you almost never hear anyone say something about a childless man. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really important because, uh, you know, I've said this before and I'll say it till I'm blue in the face, right? It's, it's very important to me that choices are apparent and accessible, meaning that if a woman decides to have a child, fantastic but let's make sure that that choice for you means an and, not an or. Meaning that if you have children, that you get to do that, and that gets to be a a part of an identity for you, but that there's also these other things that make up your identity as well, Um, because that's what happens for men. They get to be fathers, but they also get to be all these other things. And I think we have such a habit as a society of defining women by their motherhood status first, and then all these other things, And I don't think that that is helpful when someone is going through a process like this, where they're maybe trying to enter that new identity of motherhood and it's not going very well for them. And it makes the weight even heavier on them and who they are and what it like, kind of what their value is to themselves and to society.
1: Yeah. And I think you raise a very good point that I think uh, feminist movements are trying to address, but it's the fact that all of this comes under the umbrella of feminism. The fact that um, for me, for example, not having children is also a conscious decision because I want to have the time and energy and money to devote to specific things. And I know I wouldn't be able to if I was a mother. Now, I, for example, I I really dislike the phrase, you can have it all, because I don't think you can. I don't think you can be um, you know, necessarily a high power CEO, all while being a homemaking mom of multiple children. It's just, it's just too hard. And even when you read about some of these, you know, very, very powerful women, uh, I remember there was one CEO, like, she basically slept in her office, and the kids were there too. And it's like, is that really having it all? Or is, you know, are you just not being supported in a way? And I think this, we're really seeing it. So, so many articles right now about the the toll that mothers uh, are suffering from from covid and you know having to leave yes. the workforce because the kids are home or feeling overwhelmed and um it's just to me it's more validation about how hard it is to mm-hmm. combine both um but you also have the other side of like you know if you're a stay-at-home uh, mom of let's say three four kids uh what do you do you know if your husband decides to divorce you when you're 45 uh it's just like it all of this comes it's it's a lack of support for for women's choices and you know lack of parental leave uh lack of uh subsidized healthcare in the u.s in the u.s at least um but it's still not it's still not perfect um you know uh there's but it's definitely i think in my opinion and again I, I could be wrong because there are women who have been able to consult both but in, in my opinion it's not it's, it's not a huge surprise that sometimes some of these women from history who have been very highly educated or very devoted to specific cause choose not to marry because they've seen uh, how they wouldn't be able to do what they wanted to do like for example and again, a lot of women that we remember from history went above and beyond, even as mothers. Like, it shouldn't. Women shouldn't feel pressure to to be everything. Like, <laughs> you don't need to have a career or a family, or you can have both. But, well, you can try to have both. Um, but what I mean is, like, I always like the uh, the example of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth, Hastington, and, and the fact that you know Susan B. Anthony had no no husband and no kids. And she was able to go travel. Now she delivered speeches that uh, Elizabeth wrote, uh, who was home with like seven or eight children. Um, And again, they were both involved in the movement, but like one was a lot more restricted and household management. And thankfully things have improved, but I, I haven't seen a couple in which the dad actually does as much as the mom does in terms of childcare. I just haven't seen it. I know there are stay at home dads. I don't know any. Um, And, and it's just, it's a reality that, you know, that's going to be your, as we said earlier, it should be your priority if you have kids. But I think those things are things we need to be aware of before you make a decision
0: because you can't take it back. So Uh, I think what that comes down to is this concept of informed consent. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is so much, so much information that we absorb from the time we're little about uh, what life's going to be like, what parenthood is like. Um, And there's a whole lot of kind of stories that are inaccurate that were sold about what it's like to be a parent, even though we see, you know, our parents raising us, it doesn't mean that we understand their experience Mm -hmm. and you know, I think the messaging that a lot of people receive is that it's natural, it's intuitive, it just happens, it's easy, or or even if they don't say it's easy, that it's fine, it's not, it's not so taxing. Um, it's just an extension of your life. And while I don't see parenthood as a bad thing, I don't see that description of it as accurate. And I think it's important to be very upfront and honest about the realities of how hard it can be. Because also for many, for the people who want to be a parent. Um, the benefits are obvious, right? The benefits are many, they're wonderful and they can be overwhelming benefits, but those come with some challenging things. And when you aren't honest about how hard those things can be, um, you're really setting people up to, I wouldn't say for failure because most people, I think, figure it out, um, but you're setting them up for, at a minimum, a very hard period of time <laughs> to kind of get their bearings that if we had prepared people for, that transition might not be so hard for them. Um, and I've heard many people say, look, if, if you are not absolutely, absolutely certain you want this, don't do it because it's too hard. And I think that's really helpful. Um, I think that's really helpful to people um, when they're really trying to analyze what this will mean for them.
1: Yes, and I think you're completely right about the inaccurate descriptions uh, of parenthood. And the fact that I feel like every time I see a conversation about uh, people who weren't sure that having kids uh, and had kids, what happened, um, unless I'm in a very specific community that is open about regretful parenthood, then the end, like, I am shocked by how many times I see, oh, I didn't want kids, and then I had it. And it's okay. It worked. Like, I'm happy. Like, and it's just, yeah, no wonder people feel pressure because it feels like either it's like, Oh, I didn't want kids and I had them and it's great. Or it's like, Oh yeah, well, you know, you'll figure it out money. You'll figure it out. You'll just go to a restaurants. list. It's like, well, I mean, it is not always <laughs> avocado toast. Isn't just the only budget people have, you know, there's real, <laughs> there's, there's real stuff that is, that, is, that is happening right now that can seriously impact a person's ability to, afford having children, mm-hmm. fortunately, uh, which isn't, again, uh, we were talking, I would talk a lot about women who can't have children, but there's also people who want kids, but realize that they can't afford them
0: mm-hmm.
1: or, you know, they work too hard, too long. And they like just realities of life are also important. And, and honestly, as, as much, as much stigma as being child-free has, parents who openly regret having children face 10 times the backlash. And it's only recently that I've seen books even, you know, address the subject of regretful, uh, usually regretful motherhood. And it's, it's, um, I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot of, I feel, parenthood accounts that try to support parents. And it's just a lot of things that... I feel people need to be exposed to more Um, Mm -hmm. and, and then they bond over it. But it's like it's it's sad that it has to be once you've reached a point where you need support from people in the same situation instead of, as you say,
0: in really informed consent. Well, and again, the problem comes when kind of when when really in reality, the world is many shades of gray, but we have this one size fits all. Mm. response to it. And this one size fits all means that everyone's on a direct path to parenthood. And if they, if for whatever reason doesn't happen for them, that's really too bad because that's what they should be doing. Um, and that is, I think where the problem lies at the end of the day. And I think that this conversation about child-free people, um, is an important one for everyone. Again, no, regardless of what end of the spectrum they are on, because it's, it's a cycle that makes us sensitive to every part mm that spectrum. It makes us think about the decision-making process for whoever is making any of those decisions and why, um, if they're stuck with a decision, like they're stuck in not knowing, is what I mean by that, um, or if they've made a concrete decision on either end of the spectrum. But we all need to be sensitive to each other. And once we do that, we shift this social conversation. Well, thank you so much for, for speaking with me today. I so appreciate we've talked for a while and it's been so nice yeah just thank you for all of your insight and i hope we can speak again and thank you so much for having me on your podcast and it's it's been so interesting you know to to
1: try and and connect the 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 dots in between, you know, like the women you've covered in the bicycles and some of the women I've covered and, you know, um, the work that was done in World War II, behind the scenes like Elizabeth Friedman or in front of the scenes like Nancy Wake and and how it all works and personalities and just impact. And and I'm sure if you if you ever picked another like, you know, object or profession, I'm sure we could have another <laughs> conversation. So thank you again sure. so
0: much. This was so great. Thank you. And now it's time for a segment I call The Stacks. Doing research is one of my favorite things to do. The more you learn, the more the puzzle pieces of the world start to come together. So I want to take you into the stacks of the library with me to share favorites of the books, documentaries, movies, interviews that I think you would enjoy if you want to learn more about this topic. Beyond the various books and movies that were mentioned during this episode, if you want to learn more about Nancy Wake, Emma recommends the biography by Peter Fitzsimmons. If you want to learn more about child-free and childless women in history, Emma recommends several books. The first is Single Women in the European Past, which was edited by Judith M. Bennett and Amy M. Freude. Another was A History of Celibacy by Elizabeth Abbott, and the last was How to be Childless by Rachel Crastill. Also, Emma herself has written a book about child free women in history, which I asked her about during our conversation.
1: Childless doesn't mean unmarried, right? and unmarried doesn't mean childless. <laughs> you have unwed mothers and so so it's it's all very wide and nuanced and um, there's no one specific book that addresses that history, which is what I'm trying to do in a way uh, by writing about uh, single women so not married, never married, not widows, not married uh, who also did not have kids, uh, to have this, which is a lot more specific and restricted than some of these books. It's maybe one day they'll come out.
0: (laughs) So you, I mean, you've written this book and you have an agent and you're just, you know, moving your way through a potential publication process, right? Right.
1: Exactly. It's a long process and it's a very specific, (laughs) it's a very niche subject and very specific and, um, It's just, you know, no matter what, I'm just happy that I've been able to work on it. Uh, and, And having the Instagram account is a way to just share some of the research, because as I said, I have hundreds and hundreds of names. I'm not covering all of them in the book. So
0: at least through there, I can I can cover it. All of it together creates this really beautiful and interesting and helpful picture of what women have done before us. And I think it's going to help women now and the women that come after us as well (laughs) thank you so much that's very sweet we only just scratched the surface of this profound topic but i hope you enjoyed this conversation and i hope that in talking about motherhood and child free women in history that we become more and more aware of ways to help women thrive no matter which choices they make thanks so much for listening you can find emma on instagram at millennial emma And please remember to rate and review Broadly Underestimated and connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Woman in Time. And we'll see you next time on Broadly Underestimated.